Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Questlove is a Quincy Jones for our times, a living link between the digital science of modern hip-hop and the flesh-and-blood textures of vintage R&B. Questlove co-founded The Roots, who rejuvenated hip-hop in an instrumental flurry that fits effortlessly between jazz, funk, rock, reggae, and even disco. Meanwhile, Questlove's engagement with the Soulquarians production squad and collaborations with artists such as D'Angelo, Jay-Z, Common, and even Elvis Costello have reasserted the importance of real-time playing in a style dominated by sampling and programming. Besides establishing the Crucial Heads website, OK Player, and gigging with the Roots as the house band for Jimmy Fallon's late night show, Questlove has also acquired serious skills behind the ones and twos. In this talk at the 2013 Red Bull Music Academy hosted by Jeff Mao, Questlove talks Dilla, D'Angelo, and drumming. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please give a warm welcome to Questlove. Thank you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. You do a lot of different things. Yeah, I try. I I don't know what it is. I think that now that I kind of have a normalcy, well, this is the most normal routine thing that I've, I've ever done in my life as far as like, waking up in the same city five days a week. Yeah, so I guess now that I have a routine that actually enables me to do more things than possible. Right. Well, so you're saying that, you know, being on the show, being, you know, based here in New York regularly is actually a change... Uh, that's kind of stabilized things for you. Yeah, I think in my head, uh, when we were approached uh, to do the show, um, I think we were kind of fooling ourselves. into. We talked ourselves into like, yeah, this will be, a, you know, like a, a retirement plan for us. Because, again, there's no precedent for any group or, or band well, first of all, any group or band to really stay together for that um, that amount of time, um, and I just because of the the whole westernized sort of the the, the western uh, colonization of the world. In other words, like like when I first started traveling back in ninety three, ninety four, like when you went to Germany, that was like a different experience. And when you went to Argentina, that was a different experience. And when you went to Japan, you know, but now it's like when I, when I first went to the Middle East, it was like, first thing I saw was like a KFC. And, you know, first thing on the radio was Sweet Home Alabama. (laughs) And so it was like, oh, okay, well, every place is the same. So, I mean, after kind of having that experience for about 20 years, then we just figured that it's time to you know, raise our families and just be normal. Mm-hmm. The guys, you know, most, most of the guys are married and with children and, you know, I, because I took on so much, I, I can't even, you know, I could barely call my family, remember to call my family at night. So it, 
even for me, I thought, okay, well, coming to New York will make us normal. But what we kind of underestimated was that this actually has made us more prolific and we're now more busy than we've ever been. Right. And for those who do not know of the TV show I'm that we're alluding to, yeah, sorry. Um, that would be... Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Which you Soon to be The Tonight Show. Soon yeah. to be The Tonight Show, correct. Um, you know, everybody in this room is a creative person, you know, makes music as well. Um, you know, with that in mind, uh, what, you, what would you advise for them as far as maintaining creative focus through these types of scheduling sort of things? You know, you know, they may not be on TV every night, but they might have a day job. They might have all sorts of other stresses, you know, um, sapping their creative energies. How do you maintain that type of creative focus? I think even, even though the, the one thing that, uh, the one thing that, that I manifested, I wish I knew as a, when I was younger and applied it, the one thing that I wish I knew was, uh, the, the kind of the, the power of practicing. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of that whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour theory, I mean, I, I, I clocked in my 10,000 hours as a kid, like practicing for those that you don't know, uh, in the book outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, his theory is that, um, all the people that we admire in the world, we tend to think like, Oh, well, that's, you know, this person has God's gift and this person's touched by God and Michael Jordan just is a better player than what, when really that's not the case. The case is that the, the thing that they all have in common and he breaks this down is the fact that each of these people put in at least 10,000 hours of preparation into their craft, which basically means that for four to five years in a row, you're going to have to do what you want to do in this life for three to five hours, six hours a day. David Murray, the saxophone player, tells me that he's like one of the greatest saxophone players that I've ever known. And I just said, you know, how often do you practice? He's like, oh, man, I've been slacking. Now uh, I probably do like six, seven hours a day. I was like, what? He's like, oh, man, back in the day, yeah, I did about 10 hours. And I was like, 10 hours? Like, yeah, he would get up at six and basically just shed, you know, till about, you know, four in the afternoon or whatever. And then, and that was just practice. And then he would go to, to uh, his gig at night. I can't stress enough to people that they have to practice and be a master of their craft. And I know that's kind of hard in today's society and with so many options. And But yeah, now I wish I would have practiced Six hours a day. Yeah, but you got started pretty young. I mean, when did... But there's cats like Chris Dave that have me losing sleep. I mean, like, I don't I don't feel at this place where, like, you know, and at my age that I feel like, ah, oh, let me start competing with whatever. But um, just in my... I think everyone thinks in their heads, like, well, this is about as far as I can take it. This is about as far as it, it as anything can go. Like, in my head, I thought, Okay, my little post J Dilla approach to drumming, this whole drunken style but staying on beat thing. Like, okay, I got this mastered, and then you hear someone else like, like if my style is a drunken style of drumming, 
been, you know, Chris Dave is like, you know, speed or eight ball, like it's heroin and cocaine mixed together. (laughs) So to me, it's, I think practice leads to that perfection. My dad used to always say, you know, people always say like practice makes perfect, but my dad would say, no, perfect practice makes perfect. So, but he was also a Joe Jackson-esque drill sergeant. So maybe <laughs> was his middle name. So, Well, for those who don't know, your, your dad was a musician, was a performer. Yeah, my, my father was uh, um, Lee Andrews. Uh, he was a artist on chess records. If you're familiar with uh, Cadillac Records, the movie with Beyonce based on... Uh, the life of Marshall Chess. My my father was a, a doo-wop singer on that label from like 56 to like 60. And then, um, you know, he retired once the, the British invasion really like sort of wiped away the doo-wop era uh, in America. First there was doo-wop and rock and roll and then the British invasion then came. And of course, with the British invasion was the Beatles who just redefined everything. So... But with that first wave of nostalgia, when I was born uh, in the 70s, uh, there was a nostalgia period for oldies doo-wop. And then my father got back on the bandwagon, did these little shows, uh, be like nine groups at Madison Square Garden or out in Long Island or Radio City Music Hall. So I grew up uh, kind of in a backstage environment watching acts that were big in the 50s having a revival period and my father managed to make a a living out of that from yeah pretty much my entire uh childhood and all the way up to the roots what were the what were the best things about having parents who were musicians who were working actively in music um i'm i'm now just realizing that you know, again, I'm, I'm probably the the naive thing about me is that I'm presumptuous. I just assume that everyone knows, you know, the Stevie Wonder's discography. I, I assume that everyone knows Archie Shep and Pharaoh Sanders and has Sun Ra's. Re- you know, when I was a kid, I just all I had was music. So. My my blessing, I guess from my parents' point of view, it was like, let's keep him off the streets. Because I grew up in, in West Philadelphia, which it was kind of middle class. I mean, it wasn't North Philly. Like if, if North Philly was uh, in New York, if North Philadelphia was like Bed-Stuy, then West Philadelphia. Could be, I mean, it could have been in Williamsburg or, you know, it was like right on the heart of University of Penn, a, an Ivy League college. So... I mean, it wasn't that bad, but towards the early 80s when the crack era started, then that's when, you know, shootings and that's when the violence started seeping in. So my parents were very strict as far as me being home. Their whole thing was like, you better be home before that Oprah theme starts. So right before... Like, my ass better be in that house, not at 401 or 403, like, right when that horn starts. Um, 
And I just spent a lot of my time like lost in my father's record collection. So, you know, that kind of informed me, informed me as far as, well, the tools I use today. Were there any negatives of, of, of having folks, uh, you know, in the music industry, in the music business? Um, is it all just, do you look back at it all in a positive light? You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's positive and negatives. Um, I kind of, is this a plug? My, my, my book comes out in, uh, like in three weeks. Um, <laughs> Does it? Uh, here it is. I just got it today. Anyway, so I guess in in kind of recapping this period of my life, um, I realized that it, it, I also became very insular and kind of kind of standoffish because you know I, I just didn't have any social interaction with many kids. I grew up with adults. I grew up with adult records like, you know, like when I was three, I knew, like I, I knew Sun Ra's work at the age of three. Like your average three-year-old doesn't, <laughs> the best story of all was like the first day of school when um my first homework assignment, the teacher says, you know, bring in your favorite 45. T today, you know, you Bring in your, you play an MP3 that you like on Spotify, but you know, when 45s are miniature records that you play singles on, I'm dating myself. Yeah, I'm old. Um, so I chose, uh, my parents tricked me into thinking that a lot of 50s stuff was contemporary. So I thought, I thought Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers was a contemporary group, like Why Do Fools Fall in Love, which came out in like 58, but. You know, everyone else, the kids were bringing in, like, Disco Duck and, yeah, like, Stand Alive and, like, contemporary stuff at the time that I wasn't aware of. Um, not that I wasn't aware of, but I just thought that everyone knows Bob, you know, Splish Splash by Bobby Darren and, you know, that type of stuff. And I was in for a rude awakening, like, my first week of, of school. But, um... I mean, the, I guess the setbacks are just, I don't know if that's normal or not. I mean, if it's normal just to go in a dingy basement and practice all that time, you know, right. without, I'm not saying that I was in there 24 seven, but I, there was a point where I just didn't want to go outside. Like, cause I, I didn't play basketball or do sports things. Like I just knew music. So, but you know, the, the, the plus side of it is that. I mean, not the plus side, but at least for my life, if you combined all the people born between 65 and like 79, born between 65 and 79, between my grandmother's block and my father's, uh, my parents' block, it's like maybe 33 of us. I'm only one of three people breathing or not in jail. So I don't know if that's the price to pay or not. Like to be isolated and alive or dead so how did they um how did your parents react then when you started expressing interest in hip-hop hip-hop specifically i guess so i mean unless there was another turning point before um that, people uh, do not believe this story but um 
like it was it was always my father's my father's dream was for me to be like a session drummer his his favorite drummer was Bernard Purdy a well-known session drummer that's on like a lot of soul records of the 70s 60s 70s and 80s and I guess his dream was like for me to just you know, have a, a, a just a roster of, of of clients that I had to drum for. Yeah, Dad, I'm I'm doing a Nita Baker session next week. Yeah, Dad, I'm with uh you know Luther Vandross. Da 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 da. So um, I kept the thing that people don't believe is that I managed to keep the roots a secret from my father to the beginning of our second album. <laughs> He didn't know about he. My father did not know about organics, um, and I was halfway done through our second album. Do you want more? Before I kind of had to tell him, I, I kind of have a record deal. Right. Record deal doing what? You know, I got a band. Well, who? That hoodlum Tariq. You know, like he just thought <laughs> Black Thought was a, a hoodlum. That hoodlum boy you hang with. Um, you know, because he just thought that hip hop was just. Bitch, suck my dick and put my dick in the, like he just he, he he didn't see it as an art form like you know I'd, I'd blast uh, Public Enemies Nation of Millions and he just like it's just there's no music it's not art it's not music so we just never bonded on that level so I'll say that in terms of hip hop um, it was a hardest sell for my father and even like deep into like. Our second album, it was still like, you know, well, you got to get a real job one day. Yeah. You got to get a real job one day. And like, he just didn't think that. I think he just put his fears of like his stalled career, like he projected that onto me. But, you know, he's not saying that now. He's he's <laughs> extremely happy with how things turned out. You know, you've said that your style initially with the roots was to emulate breakbeats to really kind of play like you would be looping a drum um yeah how that must have been in some ways really counterintuitive as a musician to restrict yourself or was it i'll say in the beginning i didn't know any better um for the organics record and for do you want more I mean, I thought of myself as a, a breakbeat drummer, but I really wasn't. Um, I guess. Go for, yeah, go for it. All right, so. Hello? Okay. I'm saying like I'm on telephone. <laughs> Hello, you still there? I guess when um, I first started drumming, like my, my idol was a, a drummer named Steve Ferrone from a band called the uh, Average White Band. Steve was actually kind of, uh, he was he was from the, the Bernard Purdy school of uh, drumming, which Bernard had pocket, but Bernard's trademark was always uh, this particular fill, this particular fill. So I'll play a groove. Or, and then he'll do like, This fill. So that particular fill, um, I was obsessed with that fill. And then Steve Ferrone would just take that fill and just really like. 
So anytime I was on stage, like my father just wanted his music dry and in the pocket. So night after night, I would have to play this for like an hour for my dad, like, And always run the risk of being fined $10 if I dared. Like, any, 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 any of, or anything like that would, my biggest fear, like, I was drawing my dad from, from like 13 to about, uh, 20 something and if I ever did a feel like that I just run, ran the risk of him turning around and giving me that look like keep it in the pocket or just always like even if even if he was wrong he was still right so when I started drumming with the roots I started at a time in which the the renaissance period of hip-hop was alive and kicking the the renaissance period you could i always thought that hip-hop was um five year five year cycles of a particular period so you could say that 77 to 82 was the um well i guess the the initial period the fossil period so that to me was like the the recreational coke period of hip-hop of which things were more disco, post-disco sounded. I said So then from 82 to 87, the golden age of hip hop, 82 to 87, that to me was like the, the, the Koki 900 stage, the 40 ounce stage of hip hop, which was more, you know, it was it was it was quasi advanced. I mean, you had like cats like Teddy Riley coming in to do like the show by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, and and you had uh, Larry Smith's work with Run DMC. Like the the idea of like uh, like big drums, very, very sparse. Um, the classic period of hip hop, which I considered. 87 to 92, which is the crack era. Um, Because Chuck and Hank Shockley actually wanted their music to reflect the drug of the time. When he said that, I was like, oh, okay. So every period of hip hop is the drug of, of, of that moment. So 92 to 97, um, the, the, the fourth age, which I call the Renaissance period. At least there's the Renaissance for the East Coast. So you had cats like Premier. Pete Rock, Q-Tip, Shahid, Diamond D, um, digging in their parents' record collections for for jazz records. And um, there's one particular break that uh, Tip and Ali uh, used to find effect was uh, Blind Alley, of which... Blind Alley by The, the Emotions. The emotions. Um, uh, when Blind Out, when Blind Alley was initially used in '88 uh, by Big Daddy Kane, it was a straightforward break. So what happens in the Renaissance period of hip hop is now people are chopping, chopping breaks and almost making up new grooves. So you don't have to take 16 bars of a song; you can now take 
a smaller portion of it and make it different. So pretty much what I consider the the heartbeat or the pulse of that initial Renaissance period in the early 90s was based on Tip and Ali. Tariq could rhyme over that for days. Um, but the thing was is that I wasn't, I wasn't thinking like an engineer because I didn't know how to engineer and how to mix and those things. And um, not to mention, I didn't use a click track. Like, I had too much ego. ego. And they would always say, like, well, why don't you use a click track? And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do no click track. And so, you know, a lot of our records would fluctuate. So, you know, it might be a... You know, I might get excited in the studio and start speeding up. Um, but that proved to be nightmarish to DJs. And so when we get these feedback reports um, from DJs, a lot of them would just say, like, well, you know, I can't blend any of the music because, you know, the beat fluctuates. So suddenly I became the bad guy in the roots. And um, at that point, like... It's like some sort of conspiracy theory. Like people are like, well, okay, fine. We're just going to become a regular rap group and rhyme, rhyme over regular breaks. And I'm like, wait, I'm not about to be fired in my own group or this whole coup d'etat moment where you guys just decide that we don't want, like a mirror. It's a mirror's drums fault that we're not being accepted. So I kind of had to take um, extra precautionary measures on our third record, Philadelphia Half-Life. I went in the studio like maybe two months before we actually officially started. And, you know, I, I felt like Jack Nicholson and Batman. I was just like, wait till they get a load of me. Like my, my whole thing was like, I wanted to, I just said, I'm going to be the coldest, most emotionless, just an absolute machine. And I spent hours and hours and hours. And I, I probably did another 10,000 hours just, I wanted to learn everything about engineering. I wanted to know what this frequency does, what this mic does. So I would do, I would do a break. I'd do that for like four minutes and then sit at the engineer's desk and go through each microphone and figure out, okay, how can I make it sound dirty? And you know, at the time I was working with Bob Power and he was explaining to me like, well, if you put compression here or if you try the same break, but put a blanket over your snare or like I did every conceivable experiment until I felt like my drums were dirty and cold. And then suddenly, you know, when people started hearing the final mix, they were like, you know, is that a machine or is that a real human being? And then I started feeling proud. Like, yeah, see, I showed you guys. And did then you, did you use a click track during the recording of the uh, uh, Yeah, we, we, I would use a click track. Sometimes I would, you know, we, it was like half sampling myself, half uh, using click tracks, but um, I just wanted to sound as lifeless as possible. Lifeless just in terms of not standing out like a sore thumb because I just felt like, I felt like the roots were that group that had to show their ID every second, like driving while black. We were like driving while roots. And I mean, back then you had to show your, your hip hop ID, you know, like first time we met Cool G rap, Tariq's idol. Yeah. He's like, what, what, 
it was like our second album. He's like, what, what y'all got a demo or something? Like, who who are y'all? Like, we were like right off, Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. So for me, um, I wanted to be ice cold. And then I met D'Angelo and Jay Dilla, who then like made me just dismantle everything that I knew about being cold. So you mentioned Dilla and his influence on, you know, your style. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of do a little sort of before and after perhaps? Well, yeah. So, I mean, by the, by the time of Illadelph Half-Life, like I just wanted to be extremely cold. Even now it's like hard for me to play perfect because I've been kind of reprogrammed to play the opposite way. The The way that I, I, I met Dilla, um, our very first New York show. Uh, the far side had come to see us perform. And at the time he was producing um, the far side, second album lab cab in California. I had never heard of him, but I knew that Q-tip was supposed to be producing the second far side album. And um, when I'd started asking Trey and Amani, like, you know, let me hear the tip stuff. He's like, Oh no, uh, we're working with tips guy right here. And I just like, I dismissed him like this little scrawny kid, like, uh, Okay, this is not Q-tip. Like, where's Q-tip? So cut to about three weeks later, we're in North Carolina with the far side, and we opened for them. And um, I have to leave the show as soon as they get on so I can do, like, a a college radio interview. And the first song they open with is Bullshit. So, no, 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 no. The, The title's called Bullshit. And so as I'm leaving the club... I'm hearing the vibration of, of the kick drum and it's the, it was the most life changing moment I ever had. Like I had to get out of the car and run back in the club to make sure I didn't hear what I had. Like, did I hear that? I mean, just the way that, whereas this part is normal. It sounded like the kick drum was played by like a drunk three-year-old. And I was like, are you allowed to do that? So it's like, Is that so the next day in Atlanta I'm asking him like yo what was that drunken song that y'all were playing like what was that like he's like oh yeah it's bullshit you know it's produced by JD I was like who was that he's like Q-Tips guy and then suddenly they let me hear a beat tape and I just never heard someone not give a fuck and that to me was the most liberating moment like oh so all this pleasing my father being perfect I can now like now I gotta undo all the education and all the hours of preparation that I did I gotta undo that and it was hard to do and then you know by the time that D'Angelo and I started the voodoo record which was like mid 96 that was the hardest thing ever because he constantly like he wanted me to drag the beat but then he dragged the beat behind me and so now i gotta program my mind to think okay this is the metronome and now he wants me to play 
which is you know, I, I started having issues like, well, what if other drummers like the musician community is going to laugh at me? And he's like, nah, man, trust me, like use the force. That's he's he use all these Star Wars analogies with me, like use the force, man. And I'd never seen Star Wars. So, well, then how, you know, if it's if it how many hours do you think or how, how long did it take to kind of undo, you know, your I, essentially your pre your entire life's training? I, I will say that it took from 96 96 to 99 that was probably the most drumming that I've ever done in a studio setting so you're talking about spending months at Electric Lady Studios um, Studio A was D'Angelo's studio because he's notoriously a night person he he wouldn't even get to the studio till like 6pm he his hours are like from 6 p.m. to 11 a.m. So he would let Common uh, do his work. We'd work with Common in the daytime. So to do Like Water for Chocolate, uh, Common's album, we would start at like 10 in the morning, get done around 6. If we had to do more stuff, then we go to the B room. So now Common has the B room. D'Angelo has the A room. And then in the C room... You know, it would be like accessory stuff. If I got to do Nick Acosta's record or Bilal's record or uh, Erica, her album, Most Quali, everyone would use the C4. So at one point, we just had that entire studio on lockdown and everybody was just going into each other's sessions right. doing stuff. And so just during that whole time period is how I managed to turn like into... There, there was one song called the, the the very first song we did for Voodoo was a song that didn't make the record. It was called Bitch, and um, he's like, "Look, man, like this is the pro." Like he told me to play the track as as he demoed it, which was like. like for eight minutes and I did it and then he was like no 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 man you get I want you to do a drunker than that and so I I don't know by by 2000 then I just like yeah. which sounds crazy now but it, you know and contextualized in the music that he was creating right. it makes sense but you're saying though that Dilla I mean he influenced you know your style in terms of dragging the beat, but then D'Angelo had that concept independently of that as well. And he did. Um, if, if you listen to dream and eyes of mine on Brown sugar, it was more of an accident. Like I'll say with that, with, with D'Angelo and with the RZA as well. Um, it was more like a happy accident. Like, Oh, well that's hip hop. I'll just leave that glitch in there. Right. But you think like, Oh man, you, you purposely did that. Dill was a cat that I know that actually like programmed his drums with no uh, uh, quantize. He would turn the quantize off and make it imperfect. In the case of D'Angelo, like a song like Dream and Eyes of Mine, like I, that's the first time I ever heard like that whole.
and when I asked Bob Power about that, I was like, yo, like, how did he make it sound so messed up? He's like, eh, because he didn't read the manual in the book. Like, <laughs> so, you know, but it it, yeah. it it had personality to it, so I just gravitated towards it. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, those, those two were like, those two were definitely like-minded. It's not like they were together or D'Angelo knew about Dilla's shit or the opposite. Yeah. They just happened to come from the, the, the same tree. And, yeah. you know, that allowed me to, to experiment. Um, is there, is there supposed to be a Silquarians sort of reunion thing happening? Is that rumor or is that, I mean, aren't possible? we always together? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a workhorse. Yeah. I, you know, I love being proactive and working. So a big a big disappointment of my circle is the lack of or the just the the frustrating thing about about it is that the the vision sort of f- fell off the rails like yeah we had these sort of illuminati meetings of you know and I work on your record and you work on my record and da 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 and then we like we'll have our own empire and then what wound up happening is that all of us got successful you know I I had no clue whatsoever that things fall apart would have that a million people would collectively like that one album I just thought okay we're we're doomed to be in the sort of 200 300,000 underground hell um and the same for Common Common didn't think he'd ever go see have a platinum plaque and most especially didn't think that like no one we just thought like, okay, Erica and D'Angelo are the only two people in the circle that have some sort of mass appeal. And yeah. then we're all just like the the misfits. Um, and then all of us got successful and then we just kind of <laughs> – everyone just abandoned ship. Um, and not even on a disgruntled thing. Like, you know, I, I just think that maybe self-saboteur people kind of – are afraid of their own shadow and and you know what you wound up with was just a whole bunch of people afraid of their shadow and and not being active at all yeah and so um you know it's i, I mean yeah we 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 talk a good game but we someone has to show up to the studio so i mean there's always going to be talk of yeah let's work together you know but it's that's the that's the thing about like working with Jay Z, like that whole process of the the unplugged record and anything else that that I've done with him, he's like one of the coolest people to ever work with because like for the first time in my life I wasn't beat my head against the wall in frustration like, you know like a, not using Jedi mind tricks like okay well I want him to do this so let me suggest the exact opposite so that way. He'll do what I really want him to do. Like, it was none of that. Like, it was, you know, he was open to idea A and idea B, and which one is better. And you know. and, and yet that was a kind of a difficult decision at the time for you guys to even work with him. I was laughing. Uh, I forgot who I told that story to. But, yeah, I, I remember there was a time in, in, in life when, like, I mean, Dream Hampton had to really talk me off the ledge and 
make me call him back because I was just like, no, man, he's the Antichrist, like Jay-Z. I'm like, I'll lose my career if I ever work with that guy. Like, no. And, you know, she's like, dude, just talk to him. Like, he's 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 a nerd like you are. Just, just talk. And, you know, I was amazed. And I still say, like, you know, he's one of the easiest – easiest most pleasant people to ever work with well i mean i think you know to even put that in context you have to kind of look back and think about this whole quote-unquote underground versus mainstream yeah there there was that was happening in the latter part of the 90s there was was there was an apartheid yeah really uh you know pretty fierce there there was a hip-hop apartheid going on between the haves and the have-nots and i guess in 97 the 97-2002 stage, uh, which some people say is the Cristal period. Some people call it the ecstasy period. Um, it was both. Yeah, it was ecstasy and Cristal <laughs> together. Um, but it was more the, the, the cult of personality period. Um, and I call it the cult of personality because probably the most notable event in 97, well, the, the departure of Big is... Uh, one factor, and then Puff's uh, uprising. Which, when Big was alive, like there was there was a different there was a difference in the attitude towards the idea of Puffy's solo record when Big was alive and after Big was alive. When Big was alive, and people were like, "Yo, you know Puffy's going to do a solo record." Like the industry was like, "No, that that's not going to happen." I don't know if any of you saw Huffington Post's. Uh, feature on Paris Hilton signing to a young money yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I never heard of her, but it was, it was kind of the shock of that. Uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, baby and Wayne signed, uh, Paris Hilton yesterday as a, as an artist, um, to young money. And I'm not comparing this to that, but it was sort of like the, the, the shock of, wait a minute, the CEO was rapping like, Oh my God. Like, no, that's, that can't happen. That's that's not real, is it? Um, but of course, you know, on on the heels of Big's death, you know, I mean, I'll be missing you was a mighty shield. Like you really can't throw snark at someone when their first single was an homage to uh, a beloved figure. So it was like that pass was given, and you know, that's it's kind of like how he nuanced his way in. Jay Z, of course. Um, by the same token, is also you know I mean he his story is is the aspirational figure the people love the narrative of I won and the problem with or not the problem or yeah I guess you can say the problem the problem of the winner take all aspirational story is kind of the undertone which is basically I made it and you ain't shit and so the have-nots in the underground were sort of just seen as a very unattractive dweeb. You wanted to associate yourself and live vicariously through the winner, not the loser or the one that wasn't winning. And so when you add all those elements and by this point, you know, Jay-Z's at the height of his power and it's like the few people that were, I mean, it was, it was, it was a civil war between it. It was, 
like it was like an apartheid, definitely. But, but I mean, you get, and you can even in your band's history, you had, you know, some history of of it was interpreted as as taking shots at uh, at Big and Bad Boy. Oh, you know, yeah, the, uh, with the what we do I, music. I was about to say, I forgot about that video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 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 story behind that particular chapter is uh, it's hilarious. Should I read a passage or? Well, no. Buy the book. <laughs> um, right, no, but I mean, me. no, but but I mean, you know, you can summarize. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that uh, the video was interpreted as a a shots fired thing. I know it's hard for people to believe. Video is the one era area that I hated the most of of Roots albums. Mainly because like we really weren't embraced by MTV or BET, so when it was time to make videos, like that was the one area that I really wasn't involved in. So at the time, with um, the director that we were working with, um, I didn't realize the hot water that we were going to get ourselves into. Mm-hmm. Like at the time, like on paper, it looked funny. Like oh, this is gonna be hilarious! Like the, the people those who laugh. haven't seen the video, it's you yeah. know it's poking fun at these things that were going on in hip hop at the time with the rented mansion and the models and champagne. Yeah, it was kind of a, a lesson of of what is real life and what is this fantasy world that we created for ourselves. And uh, when the finished product came, it was hilarious, um, but it was also seen as you know, uh, as a shots fired moment, um, of which, you know, people started to take sides. Like everyone that year pretty much had their, you know, you were either on the side of the haves or the have nots. And so for Jay-Z to sort of cross that line and offer an olive branch or, you know, cut the velvet rope was like, that was a major thing at the time and I was that close to not taking the phone call because I was afraid of the perception of how I would look doing that. Yeah. You mentioned a, um, a, f- a term self-saboteur. Do you feel that that applies to you in any way? Have you with, you know, maybe having some um, hesitance in taking that phone call when it, you know, yeah, obviously absolutely. changed your career? Um, Especially in that time period. Yeah. Um, none of us knew how to do. I, I think that when people don't know how to, d- to deal with relative success, they don't necessarily know how to deal with it or or um, how to handle it. Um, a great example is probably our sixth album, Phrenology. Like if there's, there's a term called the departure album and usually... Any artist that has some sort of artistic peak, there's only one artist that I know that even dared to attempt to capitalize on the lightning in the bottle moment for their career, and that was Michael Jackson. Whereas he acknowledged that Thriller sold 40 million units and he wanted bad to sell 100 million units. And he went in every day with the intent on, I absolutely must sell this many units 
um, the average artist does the opposite. They do the departure record. The first departure record was Sgt. Pepper's. The Beatles were tired of being the Beatles. They said, let's let's make a disguise record. Let's, let's do the opposite of what we should be doing. And it backfired and actually became a standard. Marvin Gaye was tired of being Marvin Gaye. He wanted to get fat and grow a beard. He was tired of being the prince of Motown. Backfired and what's going on winds up being a standard. Prince makes uh, Around the World in a Day after Purple Rain because, you know, the pressure of following up, you know, this, this massive album was too much for him. So he makes the complete opposite record. I mean, there's a gazillion uh, Stevie Wonder the songs in the key of life can't follow too much pressure. So he makes a journey through the secret life of plants. Like, uh, if the closest to, uh, kind of a pink Floyd, I mean, yeah, it was a very, it was an experimental record. I mean, you could say the same thing for kid a by Radiohead coming on the heels of okay. Computer, which was like, you know, one of the most critically acclaimed albums of, of 1998. So in our case, yeah, at the time, I just felt like, well, let's just do the record. I don't know what makes you, I don't know the psychological, the psychological mind, pro, like the, the thought process that leads one to say, okay, let's, let's take everything that we worked for and just throw it out the window. Like, let's make the complete opposite album, you know, I mean, to, to some critics, you know, of the, the Krista Gow, uh, cloth and the post village voice Christogal cloth. It was like, Oh, this is an artistic statement. Like, you know, they, it was seen as a bold move, but you know, if I'm probably honest about it, yeah, it was like, I don't know what to do. And we're scared that we can't follow up this record because we didn't plan the success. So let's, let's ruin Let's, let's mess it up right. before, you know, they mess it up for us. Um, you teach a class at NYU now um, on classic albums, and I, you know, know from following your career, you you're very very much. Um, it's very important to you to monitor how your music is received critically, and you're a fan of of music journalism, and you are you know you write quite a bit, um, and I just wanted to know, you know, where that comes from. Why Why is this something that is so important to you? I think the quote was that, you know, if your Metacritic <laughs> rating ever fell below 80, you'd be devastated. Yeah. And um, why, what is that about being received that way, you know, well-received that way? Is Why is it so important to a you? A lot of it, at the time when we got signed, um, you know, our critical claim is what kept us alive. It's a uh, a very stressful thing to go week after week wondering if your label president is going to press the guillotine button on your career, you know, and slice your neck off. So we knew we couldn't sell units. And so the thing that was the most important to us was to be critically acclaimed, critically, um, lauded, you know, um, when we exiled to London, our, you know, it was a state of emergency. When Cobain, when Kurt Cobain uh, had uh, taken his life in uh, April of, of uh, 
94, that was like a state of emergency meeting for the Roots because we felt like, oh, crap, we're going to get dropped. Because by this point, Aerosmith had left Geffen. Guns N' Roses wasn't going to follow up. And now Nirvana, their cash cow is gone. Three, three marquee acts, gone. And this is how we got signed, all the profit money that they made. So we took our money, got a flat in London, and our first... Uh, our mission was to find an agent that will keep us working constantly, like doing 200 dates throughout Europe, just so that we could build up the acclaim so that when it's time to drop the roots, because by that point, Geffen had dropped 12 acts yeah. shortly thereafter. They kept the Jizza, they kept us. You know, our shield was going to be, but we're critically acclaimed, don't drop us. <laughs> yeah, the scrolls right here in my Afro pic. <laughs> It's like, we're critically acclaimed. Um, and that was our saving grace. And then, you know, when each album comes out and it's critically acclaimed, you know, it's kind of an embarrassing thing Like for a label. Like, well, we don't want to drop them because these, these guys are getting critical acclaim. So I always kind of just held on to that version of the report card. You know, just like a student wants to get straight A's, that's, that's something realistic I can aim for. You know, I don't think that, oh, we're going to go diamond one day or that type of thing. But, you know, you always want to put your best foot forward. And that's how, you know, I feel. Well, I mean, now it's just kind of hard because everyone's a critic on the Internet. So there's no pleasing people. So I'm not as there is no universal critical acclaim. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not as obsessive as I was before. But, yeah, like 10 years ago, I, I could. I could see myself having a nervous breakdown if we got a, a, a bad review. So, And now you're teaching this class about classic albums at NYU. For, for you know anyone who can't afford the tuition, what is that class like? It was, it was based on the fact that I read, I was on NPR's website, and um, they do this experiment where they um, teach... Uh, what they call a millennial, uh, someone born in the, uh, what millennials are mid eighties to late eighties, um, where they have the millennial generation sort of take, uh, works of the canon, the idea of a canon, uh, things that are assumed classic. Your parents bring you in this world and tell you, the Beatles are the best thing ever. Like you just automatically know the Beatles are great. You know that Picasso's great. You know that Miles Davis is great. You you accept these things without really investigating because they're, you know, you're told instantly these are great. And so they kind of wanted to get the, the perspective of someone who's 16, 17, 18, listen to these records. So they, you know, they do various classic albums. And one week they had an intern do... Uh, public enemies it takes a nation of millions which for me that was a life-changing moment that was my version of hearing never mind the bullocks here comes the sex pistols like for rock fans like for hip-hop that was like my moment of ah, this can change my life and he it's not that he even trash it's not that he really <laughs> trashed it but it was just a very just it was, just, it. It was yeah it was a it was such a I was heartbroken. And then, you know, initially I, I got angry because 
kind of just the passive way that he just dismissed this record. And I was ready to, you know, jump in the line of the firing squad that was ready to like, you know, you fucking idiot, you young kids. And I was ready to do that. And I was just like, I, I realized it was my fault. And the way the way that I came to that conclusion that it was my fault is because, you know, a lot of us just assume that these things are known. Like I can I can say impeach the president to you and you know instantly what I'm talking about. But if I say a term impeach the president to these people, they really they might think I'm talking about getting rid of Barack Obama, you know, and not using terms of a breakbeat, a well-known breakbeat. And it's just assumed that hip hop is so magical that it will just trickle down to the next generation. And that's not the case. So with DJing and with teaching, I feel like that's the that's me paying it forward. So um, I had written a response that was more compassionate than judgmental. And that's when uh, Jason of NYU reached out to me and said Jason King of NYU reached out to me. And I accepted it. I had a few offers from other colleges, but NYU was the closest to 30 Rock that I could get to. And so. Well, we're glad you made it here. So, I'm glad I came. Yeah, I'm glad you had time. This is the first time we really had the, or, or the yeah, second, yeah, sort of. We kind of. We done it before. We sort of did one before, but, you know. All right. This was more official, so. But everybody, let's say thanks uh, to Questlove for being here tonight. Thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in New York. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.